Let us pray. Father, your hands have made us and fashioned us. Give us now understanding that we may learn your commandments. Let your steadfast love comfort us according to your promise to your servants. Let your mercy come to us that we may live, for your word is our delight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may now take your seats. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 to 23. Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 to 23. And last time I was preaching here, we looked at the first chapter in Hosea. And so I thought that it would be beneficial to continue to look at how this perplexing love story in the book of Hosea between God and his people will continue to surprise us of God's amazing grace, to surprise us of his covenant love for sinners. And that's why I entitled our message this morning, Scandalous Mercy. Scandalous Mercy, because it is scandalous. It is shocking how God could show mercy and love to a people unworthy of his love. And so we're going to see how this drama continues to unfold as we read first from chapter 2, starting from verses 2 to 23. So people of God, hear now God's holy word. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. And for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread, and my water, and my wool, and my flax, and my oil. And my drink, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now." And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, in which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burn offerings to them and adorn herself with her ring and jewelry." And went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, 
I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. If you remember in chapter 1, uh, we already saw what scandalous mercy looks like, isn't it? We've seen there how we're introduced to a man named Hosea to be a prophet in the northern kingdom and how his mission was to speak God's words of judgment and call to repentance upon the nation of Israel before their exile to the Assyrians. And, and it was because of Israel's unfaithfulness and because of their betrayal to their covenant Lord in the land that the Lord had given them that God must judge them. But not only was it Hosea's mission to speak God's judgment, but he must also live through betrayal in his own marriage. For he was commanded to marry Gomer, a woman of whoredom, and to have children of whoredom, in which the names of his children were in themselves pronouncements of judgment with the names Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. And yet, the section in chapter 1 culminated with the prophecy of the good news that the Lord himself, through Jesus Christ, the one head and mediator, would save his people so that they are no longer called no mercy and not my people, but will now be called you have received mercy and you are now my people, the children of the living God. And it's Paul, isn't it, in Romans 9 that picks up this language in Hosea to show us how this reality was fulfilled in the new covenant to include us, right? Not only within ethnic Israel, but to include the Gentiles from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And so in Hosea chapter 1, it began with judgment, but then it comforts us with a promise of hope. Uh, a promise of restoration fulfilled in the new covenant. And as we'll see in the next section in chapter 2, it really follows the same pattern of prophetic judgment followed by a promise of hope similar to chapter 1. 
And really, it's this pattern that cycles again and again through Hosea. This pattern of judgment and salvation. And the more we dive into this prophetic literature, the, the more we can appreciate how it's revealed in vivid imagery and metaphoric language to communicate in different ways both God's judgment and, and God's hope to renew his covenant people. And perhaps you're wondering, you know, why do we need to hear this cycle of judgment and salvation today in, in prophetic books like Hosea? Like, why do we need to keep hearing doom and gloom before hearing joy and comfort in the gospel? Well, it's really the description of the Christian life, isn't it? Right? That we come before a holy God who exposes our guilt and shame, but then he mercifully initiates and reveals the hope of grace that we find in Christ alone. And it's God who continues to remind us in Israel's history in Hosea about the human condition. For we see that Hosea reveals in chapter 6 verse 7 that our spiritual sickness finds its root in Adam. That like Adam, Israel transgress the covenant. And that's why God's word exposes the reality of our own covenant-breaking our own sinful tendencies, our own sinful nature to be unfaithful to our covenant Lord who has always been faithful. That even though now we've been justified in Christ, are being sanctified by His Spirit on this side of the cross, we will continue to struggle in this tension with sin while being sanctified until the consummation where our struggles and our sin will be no more, and that our Lord returns in glory to make all things new. But until then, beloved, the Lord still impresses upon us the warning of his judgment and to turn from the idols of our hearts in repetitive fashion so that we may never forget that we worship the one true holy God, the holy God who exposes our sin in his word and yet disciplines us and assures us by the gospel the same way a loving father disciplines a child so that we can be renewed and we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And even though he has every reason to permanently terminate his relationship with us, He still chooses us. He still loves us by his infinite grace and mercy. And so, beloved, as we think about our passage this morning, it ultimately communicates this main truth that since Christ is revealed to mercifully guarantee the new covenant and renewal of his people, you must realize his renewing power within you to live in holiness And so how does our Lord achieve that for his unfaithful people? How does the Lord achieve that for his unfaithful bride? Well, we can think about how he does that in three ways. In three ways. First, the Lord judges his people. And then the Lord disciplines his people. And finally, the Lord renews his people. The Lord judges his people. The Lord disciplines his people. And the Lord renews his people. His people. And first, the Lord judges his people. And we see that there in verse 2 that the Lord brings the charge against Israel for her spiritual unfaithfulness. 
And we see that the Lord continues to use the imagery of a painful marriage in chapter 2 that began in chapter 1 because the unfaithful wife that we see in Gomer represents Israel and the faithful husband we see in Hosea represents the Lord. But not only is Israel seen as the Lord's wife, but he's, she's also depicted as a detestable mother. And, and we see that in verse 2, that the Lord brings a serious charge to Israel by addressing your children to relay the Lord's charge to plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And why? Well, it's because Israel is guilty of spiritual whoredom and spiritual adultery. And we see that Israel's kings and priests and the nation as a whole had failed to completely eliminate the idols and pagan practices that the Lord instructed them to do. And it wasn't only to be eliminated in the land, but idolatry was to have no part in the worship of God. And that was the covenant expectation established on Mount Sinai, right? When the Lord said, they shall walk after the Lord, fear him, keep his commandments, and obey his voice to serve him and hold fast to him. Yet, after many years, the pagan altars, the shrines, and the pagan rituals were still part of everyday life in the land, that even after Israel had a number of kings, Right, who were expected to wipe them out. But instead, what did Israel do? They still compromised. They gave in to the idols like the fertility god Baal, whom they thought would supply their agricultural prosperity. But in reality, if you think about it, they're really dead idols. They can't speak. They can't give life. They do nothing, just like in 1 Kings chapter 18, that when the prophets of Baal called upon Baal to produce the fire, and, and no matter how loud they cry and how much they circled around the altar, cutting themselves, their God was silent. And that's why, beloved, it's impossible for something dead to deliver true joy and security and salvation that only a living God can give. And that's why the Lord commands his people again and again to abandon your idols. He urges them in verse 2 to put away whoring, put away adultery, and get rid of them. And why? Because it violates the worship that belongs only to the one true God. And that's why false worship is an abomination, a violation of the first commandment to have no other gods before me. And even the second commandment to not make for yourself a carved image for, of any likeness. But beloved, in, deeper sense, in a deeper sense, the commandment requires much more. For it's also a matter of the heart, isn't it? Right? When we commit the sin of idolatry in our hearts, when we violate his commandments by acquiring things in our hearts that become our chief joy, our ultimate happiness, instead of our only comfort in life and in death through our Lord Jesus Christ, then we too are guilty, aren't we? And we should realize when sin like idolatry goes unchecked in our lives, 
and you allow it to become a pattern in your life, then soon you no longer fight against it, but you form an alliance with it. You become dependent on it, seeking for it, wanting more and more of it to fill that void. And we see idolatry in action when we look at verse 5, when the unfaithful mother says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Notice that Israel doesn't just wait for the idols to come to them, but they are actively pursuing these idols. Not just one idol, but many idols. And and it's ironic how she calls them lovers because dead idols aren't capable of truly loving. And she thinks they love her because she thinks the food and the drink and the clothing that she enjoys comes from the idol. But in reality, all of these blessings come from whom? From whom? Our Lord. Our Lord, isn't it? It's our Lord who causes the rain to pour, the sun to shine, and the very food and drink we enjoy. He is the God from whom all blessings flow, and yet Israel still refused to acknowledge the one true God who lavished them with everything necessary for body and soul. And what does the adulterous wife deserve but only to be put to shame, and even worse, to be put to death? And we see that threat in verse 3 where the Lord would metaphorically strip her naked as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. This is the Lord's appropriate response to their sin, that they be put to shame and death. And so as as we reflect about this, beloved, what are the things in your heart that may be even good things but have become idols? that have become your chief desires, that if you feel that you don't have this or you don't have that, or it's this plan that isn't happening in your life, you feel your life is hopeless. But But what is the truth? But is that the truth, I mean? Is that where your assurance lies? Because the truth is, beloved, is that for those who are united to Christ by His Spirit, You already have all his benefits. In Christ, we have been given eternal life, grace and mercy, justification and his holiness. In Christ, we have been given more than we need for body and soul. And why? Because it's Christ, beloved, who made it possible by by being put to shame on our behalf. It was him who was stripped naked on a cross and killed so that you and I don't need to trust in anything else, but to trust in him who gave himself for our sins and to grant us renewal and restoration that really an, that only a living God can do for us. And so not only does our living God judge his people and expose their sin, but we also see the second truth, which is that the Lord disciplines his people. The Lord disciplines his people. And the reason we know that is because of the sin of spiritual idolatry. And his discipline is sometimes painful, isn't it? 
Yet the Bible tells us it's necessary in the Christian life, especially when letting, when letting go of a sinful habit can be very difficult. And it's not because God wants to harm you and leave you in despair, but because God genuinely cares for what's right for you and he wants to set you on the right path. Right, the same way, boys and girls, how your parents know what's right for you because they have wisdom, right? They have experience, even if sometimes being corrected is hard. But just because discipline is hard for us, it doesn't mean that it's not good for us, especially if it's the Lord working in you and and giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And we see a series of the Lord's disciplinary actions in response to Israel's sin in verses 6 to 13, where the Lord says in poetic fashion in verse 6, he says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. And so we see this vivid imagery of God working in the life of his unfaithful wife, right? By blocking her path, by cutting off her source of sin and idolatry. And we see there in verse 7 that even if God cuts the source of sin in her life, what does she do, right? Well, she remains determined to pursue her lovers. But you see, no matter how much she tries and no matter how much she tries to find them, The Lord will not let her because he's making her realize that all this time it wasn't her lovers that loved her, but it was the Lord who truly loved her and and cared for her. In verse 8, it was the Lord who gave the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they misused for Baal. And so in the same way, beloved, I think that if we were left to design our own path in life, I doubt that we would choose first the path of righteousness. I mean, knowing now, I, would, I, I personally would not have chosen God first. And we know ourselves very well, don't we, that if it wasn't for his grace and his mercy to work in our lives, then we wouldn't be here. You know, we wouldn't be walking in the fear of the Lord, but rather we would choose sin Choosing spiritual death over life. And so how else would the Lord discipline Israel for her relentless whoredom? Well, we see in verse 9, he says, Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And so we see the Lord will not only block her path to her idols, but also now he takes back the the resources that are necessary to sustain her life. Because remember, beloved, not only he has the power to give blessing, but God has the power to take back what is rightfully his. Because everything that we have doesn't belong to us. It, It really belongs to the Lord. And what's More painful is the imagery that the Lord even takes away her clothing that kept her warm, that protected her. But now he will take it away. She is left cold, alone, 
and naked and even left exposed in her shame because her lovers can't do anything. And we see there in verse 10 that no one can rescue her out of the hand of God. In other words, no one can change the Lord's painful yet necessary discipline for his wayward wife, for his unfaithful people. And so we see one by one the Lord cutting off all the good things that were given to her by which she has pursued, misused, and abused, which was intended for her to enjoy and to give honor to the Lord her God. But that too will end. Such as the appointed feast that she misused would now be gone. The harvest of the land that she once enjoyed will now be destroyed, and her misuse of burnt offerings to make the Baals will finally be punished. Everything that Israel had will be gone. And why? Because we read in verse 13 that she forgot the Lord and went after her lovers. And that's why the land that was given to them will soon be taken away because remember that uh, these, these were the curses that Israel was warned about again and again from Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 28 that if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And, and you know, tragically, that's what happened when the Assyrian army came in 722 BC to overtake them and to finally exile them from the northern kingdom. And so, beloved, as we think about the tragedy in Israel's history, about how the Lord judges his people and how the Lord disciplines his people, we realize how serious covenant faithfulness is between God and his people. And the picture of unfaithful wives seen in Israel and the Lord's discipline should always humble us to realize that without Christ, Without him, we are hopeless. We are, uh, without, without him, you know, we are nothing. And that's why we have no other hope that can save us but to trust in God's promise and renewal in Christ before we can really see any real change in our lives because we need to be renewed. We, we need to be restored so that our hearts can genuinely respond to the Lord who calls us to faithfulness. And that's why finally, beloved, in the last section of our passage, from verses 14 to 23, we see the Lord reveal to us a beautiful promise. A promise in which the Lord renews his people. A promise of a new covenant that will last forever. And we see that there in verse 18, the Lord declares, I will make for them a covenant on that day. You see that? I will make a covenant for them on that day. And that's vital. And that's vital because the prophets anticipated the day of that new covenant. And it's the new covenant, beloved, that we already enjoy with Christ. And so to be reading prophecies like this really should give us great comfort and encouragement as we anticipate the consummation of the new covenant when Christ comes in glory. And so on the basis of that new covenant, the Lord will communicate with poetic courtship language in verse 14 when he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And so notice how the Lord speaks 
and, and how his tone has changed. Because it's starkly different from the last 12 verses of judgment and threat, isn't it? And, and it's not because the Lord no longer detests her idolatry, right? Or that he overlooks her sin, but that the Lord now guarantees that when he restores his people, nothing will ever break his covenant. And now with restoration, he can speak tenderly in her brokenness. And we see that the Lord initiates restoration saying, I will allure her. And notice that the I there is emphatic in the Hebrew because it communicates his determination and his desire to restore her. And when he says, I will allure her, he allures her with charm drawing her to himself as he, as he metaphorically brings her into the wilderness. And, and it's, not just, it's not the wilderness in the negative sense where she goes to suffer, but now it's the wilderness in the positive sense where their love is restored, right? It's there we see the Lord speaking tenderly to her, which literally uh, means to speak to the heart, as one commentator puts it. And that's, and that's really how the Lord Jesus speaks to sinners, right? He woos her. He speaks to her heart that wonderful promise of grace. And, and it's interesting that the Lord also brings to mind in verse 15, the valley of Acre. Because it literally means the valley of trouble, right? It was the valley of trouble. It, but it, it's really a place near Jericho in Joshua chapter 7, where Achan was stoned to death because of his sin. But now, instead of remembering it as a landmark of judgment and trouble, the Lord actually transforms it to be what? A door of hope. And that's what the Lord's restoration is all about, that his people receive the promise of hope. And we continue to see signs of this renewal in his people in verses 16 to 17, in which God's people will now call the Lord, my husband. And no more shall they call him Baal. Because really in the new covenant, no idolatry will rule in the hearts of his people. Why? Why? Because Christ will now rule in their hearts. And their lips will forever acknowledge our true lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though we still wrestle with sin in this age, we know that it no longer has dominion over us. Because the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and is transforming us to honor God and to love God and to walk in his ways. And then notice in verses 19 to 20 how the Lord finalizes the courtship process. By repeating the promise three times, I will betroth you, I will betroth you, and I will betroth you to me forever. Isn't that wonderful? In other words, he guarantees that he will permanently restore this broken marriage. And like a bride price given to the bride's father in Israel's culture, the Lord gives to his people the bride price of righteousness and justice, steadfast love, mercy and faithfulness and beloved that's exactly what christ earned for us right by his perfect obedience and death so that now these virtues are what's being transformed in his people in the new covenant and the lord promises in our texts 
you shall know the Lord. You shall know him. And why? Because he renews us to know not just about him, right? But he renews us to know him more deeply and more intimately, just like a husband and a wife know each other intimately. And finally, the crescendo of this section isn't only the promise of restored marriage, but it's a promise of a new land, a better land, a better place where the Lord will restore what has been taken away. But even better, for he promises in verse 18, a place of safety, a place of peace, in which verse, in verse 21 he also uses agricultural imagery in which he promises in that day, the Lord will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land. And so you see, beloved, it's no longer that land that was defiled by his people, but it's the promise of a better land, a land that God will fill that he will recreate in glory so that in the new heavens and the new earth, his people will forever love the Lord and the Lord will forever love his people. And then the Lord ends in verse 23 by again reversing the names of judgment in which he promises us that I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Isn't that a wonderful assurance of hope, beloved? Isn't that a wonderful promise? That we truly know him and that we truly know that he is our God because of what he has done. And so in conclusion, as you think about how the Lord renews you through our Lord Jesus Christ, remember that he now gives you his renewing power to live in holiness to live without fear. Even in this broken world, he continues to come to us to speak tenderly to our hearts by his word and his spirit, to comfort us when our faith is weak, to assure us when we feel the guilt and the shame in the Christian life, so that again and again we look to his eternal grace, his mercy and renewal. And so, beloved, may you trust in him, knowing that our Lord is always faithful, that you are his beloved people, and that he is your God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. And I'll use once again that wonderful prayer of John Calvin after studying this section. Almighty God, we pray that you may grant that our hearts may be so softened by your spirit and the hardness which has until now prevailed may be so corrected that we may submit ourselves to you with genuine obedience, especially as you do so kindly and tenderly invite us to thyself, that being allured by this sweet invitation, we may run, and so run us not to be weary in our course, until Christ shall at length bring us together to you and at the same time lead us to you for that eternal life, which he has obtained for us by his own blood. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.